Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Huge apologies, it's been two weeks since I did my last podcast episode, purely because I've been, I think I've just been about the busiest I've ever been in the past week. Got back from Barcelona, spent a few days in England, just, just managed to squeeze in a BSA Gold Star review in the three or four days we were back in England and then headed off to Tenerife for a week. And my time in Tenerife was taken up by doing, I think I did two full six or seven hour tours of the island. I did a review of the Triumph Speed Twin 900. I did a a property tour and just out and about the whole time. It was an incredible week, but I've never been so busy. So apologies for missing a week. I want to tell you a story before I get to your emails. And... I'll get to, I think I'll get to pretty much all of them. Apologies if I do miss some out. So this may be a slightly longer podcast episode, but I've got to tell you a little story from from Tenerife because I was out with, with Adam from Tenerife on Triumph. And it was, we, we'd just been out for pizza. It was probably about, my guess is about 10 p.m. or something like that. And Adam pointed out this lovely Triumph Bonneville T100 uh, just down a, a street in a little car park, just in a, a real local zone, a residential area of Tenerife. And there was a people carrier, a Mercedes people carrier, right next to this Bonneville. And I went over to this lovely Bonneville, 2007 model, carburetted, but loads of chrome on it, like mine, but, you know, even more, you know, boom, wow, extrovert than mine with all of the chrome styling. And I took a photo of it. And then this Mercedes door opens up right next to the Bonneville. Flume, a plume of smoke pours out, you know, smell of marijuana just filling the air. And this head pops out. And it's a guy speaking in in extremely enthusiastic Spanish to me. And Adam comes over from Tenerife on Triumph and he starts translating to me. And this guy, the passion that he had, this turns out to be his Triumph T100, Don't ask me why or how his situation got there, but he was living in his van, Uruguayan gentleman, living there what we think was at least a few weeks uh, that we had noticed him living there or that Adam had noticed him living there. Uh, Parked right next to his Triumph Bonneville. I assume that he spent most evenings, you know, in his van, lying there, 20, 18 degrees in the evening, just smoking some marijuana every evening and just looking at his pride and joy, this T100. And God, the things he was telling us, you know, in Uruguay, Triumph seen as the Mercedes of motorcycles. They're seen as the ultimate status symbol. And the the things that, you know, the passion that he showed for that Triumph motorcycle, you know, he was encouraging us to sit on it and pointing out bits of the quality and the design elements of it, telling us the mileage, the year, everything about it. Really inspiring. And whatever situation he got into to be living in his van, parked up next to his T100, a Uruguayan in Tenerife, I just found it fascinating. I mean, yeah, you know, you can look at it from two points of view. You can look at it in, oh dear, look, poor guy living in a van. But then when you actually see it, you know, and you speak to him, God, I didn't think poor guy at all. I thought, my Lord, that is the definition, the definition of freedom. This guy could not have been happier. 
he was living his version of his dream and it was amazing talking to him for about 20 minutes. I weirdly found it incredibly inspiring. You know, it just shows that happiness is wherever you want to find it. Whatever your version of happiness is, it can be achievable. My argument would be probably 90% of the time, and this guy proves it. Really, really inspiring meeting him. Great character, obviously. Uh, you know, I'm learning Spanish, but I'll be honest, most had to be translated, but I'll never forget that little encounter. Right, let's get to it. Here we go. And again, apologies for, for those of you who I, who I may miss out on to, to reply to the comments or to reply from your messages coming in. Huge apologies, but I'm going to get down to it now. Let's begin with Andrew. Freddie, as I'm thinking, okay, ah, Okay, Freddie, as I'm thinking about swapping my Suzuki SV650S next year, purely because I want a bike that suits my style a bit more, and I keep coming back to these, a Honda X, X4 CB1300. I think it looks amazing and would sit very nicely in my garage alongside my 2002 Honda Shadow. I'd love to hear your thoughts and impressions on it, maybe on the Maybe on the podcast. Apologies for that. My alarm just went off and it always cuts out the, the sound recording. Just had an alarm pop up saying, car insurance due for renewal. I have to sort that out. Last time I got the insurance, it was in Tenerife. I hope they keep my no claims bonus there. Okay, I'm carrying on. Um, the SV is a lot of fun to ride, but the X4 would give me um, more or give me the same thrills, um, would give me more of the same thrills um, as the, sorry, let me start that again. The SV is a lot of fun to ride, but the X4 would give me the same thrills when it comes to power and acceleration, but look infinitely cooler. They only have 100 horsepower, only, considering it's a 1300cc beast, but the torque figures are immense. Okay, Andrew sent me a link over of this on a YouTube video. Do you know what, Andrew, this is a bike that, I often talk about the CB1100, but I'm glad you brought this up. So, Honda CB1300 X4. 1300. Okay, let's type in MCN review and let's have a look at this. 2005 to 2013. Oh, yes, they do it in a fared and unfaired version. Yes, I know this bike. I know this bike. I mean, you know, when you look at Hondas, considering this is a 1300cc engine, owner's reliability rating, 4.9 out of 5 stars. I'm going to very quickly, so this is a bike that definitely deserves highlighting. It's got all of the, the modern classic, the retro looks. This is a serious look at this bike, but this is going to have, you know, a real unique niche factor to it because you are not going to be seeing many of these bikes on the road and big engines always always attract a huge amount of attention let me see if i can actually find one on x4 let's see if i can actually find one on auto trader because yeah there aren't many of them actually two of the, just two available it's fascinating go and check this out it comes under honda x4 as opposed to honda cb1300 type in honda x4 onto auto trader or wherever you're looking 
God, I'm not sure if I've ever seen one of these in my life. The top one, the two of them, the top one has a very small backrest, so this will be all day comfort for a pillion. It's 21 years old, comes from 2001, and it's just £3,899. And it's a real beast of a bike. It's got, it's got an almost futuristic style to it. Do you know, I don't know if this is a bike I've properly looked at or appreciated before. It's not quite the bike I thought it would be. I was expecting more Honda CB1100 looks, but this is, this is very different. Go and check that out. That's a good shout out there. Andrew, thank you. Have a great day. I move on. Dear Freddie, as you've waxed poetic on the topic of picking up a Land Rover Defender as your dream car of sorts, I wanted to share my experience in that vein. I was lucky enough to have two wonderful grandmothers, one of whom was a total petrol head. After she passed away, I was faced with the choice of either taking a small cash inheritance or taking ownership of her 1991 uh, Acura NSX. I'd grown up loving the car and had always dreamt that it would one day pass to me. Given it has an accident history, but not a write-off and over 200,000 kilometers on the odometer, it ended up being not a totally unreasonable expenditure for 27-year-old me at the time, especially given my emotional tie to the car. Fast forward four years, and I don't regret a single penny. I've spent, uh, I've spent on the car to keep it in the family and on the road. My only issue now is my 2019 Triumph Scrambler 1200 XC that competes for driving time in season here in Canada. And I find myself wishing I had more time to enjoy both. So, as someone who has shamelessly indulged in my hobbies, guitars, cars and bikes, I think I've come to the realisation that while it's cool and fun being the person who has exciting toys, if they come at the expense of experiences like travelling and seizing hold of the things that bring true and lasting joy to your life, then it's not worth it. Stuff is just stuff. Cheers from Toronto, Canada. David. David, thank you for sharing this. It's fascinating to hear the insight of, of someone who does have two real dream machines there. I mean, imagine that. Imagine a, a grandmother with a, an NSX. That is absolutely fantastic. And then taking it on for yourself. You know, I'm not surprised as well. Over 200,000 kilometers on the clock. Nothing for a Honda, an Acura. It's brilliant. And it, it shows, David. I'm so glad you said that as someone who's got a, a dream garage. You know, the most important thing is, is that freedom. And if you're a millionaire, your level of freedom will be very different from someone who's on a lower salary. But the most important thing is not, what was it someone said? Someone once said to me, and I'll never forget this, it's, it's very simple but very brilliant. Do you own your belongings or do your belongings own you? I'm sure I've said that recently. But, you know, if you get yourself in with too many overheads, your belongings end up owning you. You're beholden to them on a monthly basis, with sometimes, if we overstretch, paying too much. So David, thank you so much for sending that over. Sending my best in Canada. Moving on, Freddie, or oh, hi Freddie. Uh, top tip time. Oh, I like this. Top tip time. Make riding in winter a pleasure, 
by wearing a one size up ski suit over your regular riding gear. You may look like a beep, but it sure is pretty toasty. I got into bikes to ride a sports bike and I've done nearly everything in between, but now my, uh, now my ride is a K1600 GT. That's the massive BMW because I like long rides and it packs all the bells and whistles, but I also like a smaller sidekick. And with the, with the prevalence of retro doing the rounds, I really fancy the Moto Guzzi V7850. You've ridden this bike and many around it. Does it hold any memories for you? Marco, Marco, thank you for that. Let me get to your first point. This is actually a really good idea. Go sizing up on a, a one piece ski suit. So, you know, you wrap it up really tightly. Maybe you could just use, not a ratchet strap, but you know the thing where you can just tighten and tighten like you do the sleeping bag and just lash it on to the back of your motorbike. I'm fairly certain that then they're waterproof and they'll be probably windproof and extremely toasty. And that one, that all-in-one element will mean that there are no gaps for you to get cold and or wet. I quite like that idea. I'm actually going to go onto eBay and Facebook Marketplace after this and see if there is. I think I'll go, I think I'll go extra large just to have plenty of room in there and see if there are any, because that's a really good idea. If you can pick up one for 50 quid, an all-in-one ski suit, there are always times when you get caught in the rain. And once you're caught in the rain and cold, you don't care what you look like. You just want to stay warm. That's a great idea. Motoguzzi V7. I've ridden the 750, not the 850. Yes, Marco, that there is a memorable trait with that bike. The styling of the engine, that beautiful V-shaped engine, really, really very special. And also knowing that it's been made in Italy on the banks, or on the bank of Lake Como. It's a very special thing. The thing that really did it for Moto Guzzi was when I was coming back from Palermo, seeing, you know, Moto Guzzi's everywhere being used as everyday transport and seeing these old garages that sp specialize purely in Moto Guzzi's with them just parked up side by side. You know, it could have been something out of a museum, but they're just there all parked up beautifully. There's a it really gave me an attachment to the Moto Guzzi brand. And I think purely from a brand point of view, I don't think there can be anything cooler than a Moto Guzzi. It's, it's the definition of cool. I'm a huge, huge fan of them. The 850 engine is meant to be much better because it's got a lot more grunt than the old 750. Thank you, Marco. Moving on to Kieran, Freddie. I was tossing up between a 650cc interceptor and the Kawasaki Z650RS for about four months while waiting to complete my pre-learners course, brackets, I'm Australian. Here, if you're on learners, you cannot ride a motorcycle above 650cc until you have passed your learners and provisional licenses, which is anywhere from 15 months to three years. You know, Kieran, I've heard this. It is, you've got to really want to ride in Australia to be able to do it because there are a lot of hoops you've got to get through. I continue. I was wondering, if you had to start again doing everything you do, what 650cc or below bike would you choose? Bonus points if it's actually available in Australia. 
P.S. I settled on the Scram 411, a bit of a retro upright cruiser um, with the ability to go out, uh, yeah, out into the bush without too much fiddling around. I picked it up yesterday as an early Christmas present for my wife. Oh, uh, what a present. Uh, your review definitely helped me sway my choice. Thank you, Kieran. Oh, what a present. And you know, I've every bike for, every, for a, a specific situation here. If I were starting again, I wouldn't have bought my first bike, the Honda CB500. I wouldn't have bought my second bike, the Suzuki RF600. You know, I, I mean, if I could have a choice now looking back, probably even the Triumph Speed Twin probably wasn't quite me as well. You know, the first bike here, and this is the absolute truth that I've ever owned, that I've felt is spot on me, is the bike I've got now. That's the truth, the Bonneville. It's the only one. And you'll notice, of course, I haven't sold it because, yeah, it feels like me. So if I were looking at a 650cc bike and I wanted to, you know, have something that could also go into the outback in Australia, I mean, God, what a place to ride, you know, and just the fact that on the weekends you can even go out to do a bit of light off-roading. I don't think you'd be going far wrong with Scram 411. I think that would be very possibly close to top of my list. I'd also chuck in the Himalayan there, but that's purely preference between the two. They're so closely tied. You could also look at the Fantic Caballero, but I prefer the Scram 411 because it feels more rugged and it feels, for me, more comfortable and more substantial when riding on the motorway. So, do you know, Kieran, bearing in mind I'd want to do a bit of light off-roading like you, bit of camping, you know, strap a tent, some panniers onto the side. Himalayan or Scram 411. I think you've got the perfect bike there in the Scram 411. I cannot imagine a more beautiful riding experience in Australia. I remember when I was in Australia for a month, just seeing on a Friday evening, you know, all of the pickups and stuff head, heading out on a Friday, packed up, you've got the lunch boxes in there, out to explore the amazing countryside, you know, for two or three nights. They just love the outdoor lifestyle out there. They love it. Oh, I'm jealous, Kieran. Enjoy it. Uh, it's the perfect choice. Moving on. Hi, Freddie. Uh, loving your YouTubes and podcasts. Um, I was listening to one today about turbo bikes, and they were indeed a thing in the late 80s. I think a mate had a Honda. CX650 Turbo. And I remember him saying how ra how rapid it was. Then, uh, Honda, C wow, okay, I have to Google this. Honda CX, Honda CX650 Turbo. Yeah, turbocharged 674cc motorbike from 1983. How weirdly brilliant. Right, I've learned something there, Richard. Um, I continue. Um, I, uh, and I remember him saying how rapid it was. I toured Norway for, for two weeks on my BMW R1200 GSA with a mate in August. Wild camping where we fancied. It was the best time I've had touring on a bike. I've been lucky enough to tour Europe a fair bit, not sounding big-headed. Uh, thank you, Richard from Devon. Yeah, you know, Richard, that, that's a bucket list dream of mine, touring Norway and doing it for two weeks and wild camping. You know, now just even thinking about it, 
just amazing daydreaming thoughts. Wild camping in Norway for two weeks over the summer. I think that must be a bucket list thing to do. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And, you know, wild camping, saving. Yes, you get to be in the countryside, be in the great outdoors, but God, you save a lot of money as well. Because I've heard Norway is not cheap. So that sounds amazing. Moving on. Hi, Freddie. I'm having lots. Oh, this, I remember reading this. Sorry for the delay with this. And thanks for sending this over. This is really interesting. Hi, Freddie. I'm having um, lots of thoughts about my Triumph Speed Twin 1200. And I'm wondering if I've bought the wrong bike. I, love, I loved it on the test ride and genuinely enjoy it every time I ride it. It looks and sounds great, but I'm struggling to understand what bike Triumph have actually built. It feels more like a classic looking super naked as opposed to a T120 with sharper handling. When I ride it, I feel like I'm lent too far forward. This became more obvious when I sat on the BSA Gold Star at the NEC motorcycle show recently, and that immediately felt nicer with the bars being slightly higher and seat a little lower. It was more relaxed. I then sat on the T120 and it felt great too. Am I mad to be seriously considering changing a speed twin to a BSA Gold Star? I've had sports bikes in the past, Fireblades and a Street Triple. And I'm well past riding everywhere swiftly. I like the relaxing ride, but still have something that handles sharply in the corners. I thought the speed twin was exactly that. I just think it may be too aggressive. Any thoughts? Thank you, Steve. Steve, you know what? You've made me stand up for this because let me, let me reply to you confidently here. I was in the exact same situation as you, Steve. Um, and you may find it funny that I say the same situation with my Triumph Speed Twin thousand cc super naked bike and i've only ridden the speed twin 1200 your bike briefly for about three minutes but i remember that feeling very very well of riding the speed twin 1200 you're right it's a modern classic from triumph but i completely agree with your point here for me that is on the end of super naked the super naked end of the spectrum with the modern classics I don't find that a comfortable bike. I find it more like a super naked in modern classic fancy dress. For me, it, yeah, it's not like the Bonneville. I know it's the Bonneville Speed Twin 1200, but for me, it's not. It's not like the Bonneville T100. It's not like the Bonneville T120. And it is not like the Bonneville Speed Twin 900. It's much, much more aggressive, and you're right, there's more weight on your wrists. I find the seat harder. I find it, you sit more on top of the bike as opposed to sitting in the bike, being at one with the bike. It's a very, very different riding position. And I remember it took me, you know, it probably took me about four years with the, my Triumph Speed Triple. And of course, bear in mind here, when I say this, everyone's got their preference on what their dream bike is. And I'm only going on what you're saying here, Steve. There'll be some people that love their super nakeds and some that lo love others. But going on what you're saying, I think you're at a, a reckoning point here, Steve, because I was exactly the same. You know, I went from 130 horsepower Triumph Speed Triple to a 65 horsepower Bonneville. And it took me, honestly, about, about a year of in my mind deciding, 
my lord, am I going to be giving up on biking, going from a 130 horsepower bike to a 65 horsepower bike? People telling me, no, Freddie, come on. Come on, you can't get a 65 horsepower bike. You're not going to have any fun. You're not going to keep up. You're not going to do X and Y. And I promise you, it's the best decision I've ever made. I've never had so much fun riding. And you're right, Steve. It's the sit-up, enjoyable riding experience. You're all-day comfort. You're enjoying the scenery around you. The handling and the performance is more than enough. For any situation, it's more than enough. You're going to have just as much fun, but you're going to actually enjoy every second of riding. And they're much more fun in towns because they're so much more manageable than, manageable than these more powerful bikes, such as the Speed Twin. Steve, you are not remotely crazy for considering a BSA over your Speed Twin 1200. I say, just judging on what you've been looking at and what you've told me there, sell the Speed Twin 1200, get the BSA Gold Star, and I think you will honestly have a much more enjoyable riding experience. And importantly, I honestly believe you're going to be riding more because if you've got some slight doubts about the Speed Twin 1200 and you're not sure you've bought the right, right not sure you've bought the right bike, for me, that means you definitely haven't bought the right bike because once you've got the right one, there'll be no queries in your mind and no nothing in your mind telling you otherwise. I think it will be a revelation to you if you get that BSA Gold Star. Let me know if you go for it because it did. It took me a year or so to actually come round to the idea that, my Lord, maybe a slower modern classic could be just as fun, if not more fun. And I promise you it is, Steve. The best of luck. Moving on. Hi, Freddie. Uh, you are... Okay, here we go. Hi, Freddie. In a much more... Oh, let me start with this again. Um, enjoying what you're doing. Uh, you're helping um, open up the joys of motorcycling. In a much smaller way, I've managed to do the same. And I thought this little story would resonate with some of your listeners on your podcast and show them... Uh, sorry, and show that even the most resolute can be converted to motorcycling. I'm knocking towards 60 years old now and have had motorcycles most of my life with gaps in between when the kids came along, etc., etc. I have a very good friend, an ex-policeman, an ex-JP, who has been the complete opposite. He detested motorcycles and brought his sons up to never mention the word in his presence. Wind the clock on a few years and the opportunity fell to me to purchase an old British 1962 Enfield Meteor Miner, a true barn find. My friend helped me fix her up and get her back on the road, and during the process I could see a gradual change in this lifelong negative attitude towards motorcycles. A conversation some 12 months later over a pint led to him confessing he quite fancied the idea of buying an old BSA Bantam, a bike that was the choice of the masses for getting to and from work up until the mid-1970s. And also the GPO used them for delivering mail. It would have to be a 125cc, of course, as he's never even sat astride a bike on the road. After mentioning the subject very delicately to his wife and expecting a frosty reply... He was surprised to hear that she was very much behind it. So he bought a box of bits from eBay and gradually built a BSA Bantam from scratch. 
We now ride regularly to local shows and he's even bought a brand new AJS 125 to allow us to go further afield. He's six foot plus and 19 stone, so the little bantam struggled to keep up with me. From someone who hated motorcycles, he's now embraced the whole lifestyle. His only regret is that he left it so late and doesn't have the confidence to go through the main test, but is quite happy now to ride on L plates and take his CBT every two years. They say that when you go, your life flashes before your eyes. It's up to us to make sure it's worth watching. Keep up the good work, Freddie. All the best, Yorkie. That's just, you know, that um, I'm genuinely inspired by that. Thank you for sharing that, Yorkie, because, you know, it shows, you know, you are never too old or too young or too X or too Y to start something new and to get into something. And there's nothing more important. This sounds extremely selfish. There's nothing more important than doing what we want to do, because you've only got one life to do everything you want to do and cram everything that you want to do in life into what you do. You know, I remember it was, when was it? It was probably about, this sounds like I was having a midlife crisis at 25. I remember I was about 24 years old and I was thinking, what am I, what am I going to do now? You know, I've got to do something that I, that I really enjoy, that I want to do. And it's very strange. I went on to a website and I thought, what's the best way to look at life? So I thought it's the perfect way to look at life is to think and to get bits of knowledge from the older generation. So I typed in, this sounds really morbid, but I typed in deathbed regrets. And in that deathbed regrets, it basically was a, a series of interviews with people who are about to die, the old generation, you know, I don't, whether it be 80 years plus or whatever, but an old generation when, when they were about to die. And it showed the single biggest regrets listed. And, uh, you know, from those regrets, it was, you know, I wish I would have worried less. I wish I wouldn't have, you know, worried so much about my career. I wish I would have done what I wanted to do. The startling thing for me when I looked at that list was, at no point did anyone, not one person, ever say, I wish I would have been more responsible or I wish I would have saved more. It was all about enjoying the quality of life, enjoying life because it flashes by so, so quickly. You've inspired me there, Yorkie. Thank you so much for sending that over. Moving on, Freddie, I've been watching your, your videos and listening to your podcasts. Um, I know that you are riding all around the seasons. What advice do you have for winterizing a motorcycle in terms of fuel not being used for a period of time when the motorcycle sits in the garage? Does the fuel really go bad after 30 days? And do we need to add additive to the petrol? Does the additive have an adverse effect on the engine? It would be great if you could touch base um, some of these on the podcast. I live in Norfolk. Hello, Mo in Norfolk. Um, I might see you around and say hello uh, someday. Again, thank you for making uh, the content. And thanks to Monica too. Cheers, Mo. Great to hear from you, Mo, from, well, my neighbour in Norfolk. Yes, I'm going to say something here that will be controversial, Mo. And I welcome anyone um, 
kind of, you know, disagreeing with me strongly or otherwise. If you do disagree with me or if you agree with me, let me know. I'll share the response to make it as fair and balanced as possible. So, Mo, I, I will share the feedback if anyone gives any on this. I've, I've left a bike before, probably for about, oh God, I think I probably, one of my bikes probably may even have left for eight months or a year or so when I headed off to Tenerife about seven years ago. My personal thoughts, just leave it. Honestly, just leave the bike. It will be totally fine. As long as it's a relatively modern bike, leave, you can leave a bike with the same fuel in the engine for a year, start it back up, and I can almost guarantee it will start up immediately with no issues at all. So I wouldn't worry about it. I don't think you need to do anything in depth, you know, in the winter, you know, you can spray some rust repellent on it, but there's nothing else you need to do on it, especially if you're not riding it. Just park it up whenever you fancy stopping, jump back on it. You know, these modern bikes are so good. You've got nothing to worry about at all, Mo. So leave the petrol. Don't worry about it at all, even if it's months at a time. My opinion, I 100% welcome anyone to hit back at me there with, with their own opinion. I'll be appreciative of all of it. But Mo, I say absolutely nothing to worry about at all. Moving on. Freddie, I ride a naked bike, a uh, Yamaha XSR 700. I'm a fairly new rider and I struggle with high speeds on the motorway. I feel I need some more wind protection. How do you manage to tour in comfort on your Bonneville with no screen? Will I get used to the wind blast? Thank you, Steve. This is a really interesting point, Steve, because I, I love the wind blast. For me, it's it's what naked motorbikes are all about. I love the feeling of the, the wind just constantly pummeling against me. It, it makes me feel so connected to the road and it's one of the best things about nakeds, completely exposed to the elements. What I would say to you, I would say, Steve, possibly, possibly you could have a look at a different style of bike, whether that be an adventure bike with a screen because they have more wind protection or potentially a cruiser bike with a screen because for the modern classics, they're not big on you know really substantial screens that are gonna make that difference. So if you are the kind of rider who prefers a little bit more protection, and a lot of riders do, you're certainly not alone with this, Steve, I would suggest potentially looking at a different style of bike because if you're the kind of rider who does prefer, you know, to have slightly more protection from the elements, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all, you may be better suited to a slightly different style of bike. For me personally, though, I, I really love that feeling of the elements. Um, you're right, you, you get that constant wind blast and buffeting all the time, uh, but I do like it. I like it, Steve. Let me know how you get on. I'd be curious if you end up changing the genre of bike you have. Have a good one, Steve. Moving on to Alex. Good day, Freddie. I'm writing in regards to Howard's question this week involving sports bike riding and the difficulties that it brings. I've been riding around 10 years and mainly on sports bikes. I currently have a 2008 Honda Fireblade and despite having experience riding and owning many other types of bikes, there's a certain draw to sports bikes, which I think comes down to passion. No other form of motorcycling experience has been able to match up to the level of pure riding feeling and connection one gets when carving corners on a sports bike. And while I certainly appreciate other types of riding, I found that they all tend to feel 
will tend to feel pretty much like riding in the car compared to flying a jet. Granted, there are plenty of trade-offs to them as well, comfort being top, but also being generally unwieldy in urban and tra high traffic situations. But in my own personal life, I believe I will always have a sports bike in some form for as long as I can physically ride them because there's that experience there which no other style can touch. To Howard, I would suggest sticking with it as he's drawn to the look and style. Keep building that confidence and sharpening those skills as you do so you'll develop uh, the wrist and back muscles needed to make it more comfortable and also more manageable. And before you know it, that bike will feel like a part of you in a way no other I've found yet has been able to match. Cheers from across the pond. Very much enjoying the show. Alex, delighted to hear from you, Alex, on that. Coming from, from yourself being a sports bike fan. And it's great to hear that because... You know, sports bike riders, sports bike fans and sports bikes in general. It is not something that I often hugely promote. And I'm, I'm glad that you said that. So thank you so much for that, because it's great to hear your perspective on an enthusiast within that sector. Thank you so much. All my best over to you in the US. I'm moving on. Hi, Freddie. Further to our contact regarding the choice of BMW 1200 GS or a Triumph... Explorer, that's the Triumph Tiger Explorer in the last podcast. You recommended the BMW, but I've gone for the Triumph, a 1200cc Explorer XC in red, complete with spoked wheels, three-piece luggage and tank bag. A few other extras too, including a custom paint job. 2013 model, 20,000 miles, absolutely mint condition and £5,495. It's going to be a very cold 400 mile trip next Sunday on my CBR 600 RR 2004 model, which I partexed for two and a half thousand pounds to pick it up down your way, actually. Austin Motorcycles in Ovingdon between Cambridge and Ipswich. Actually, I don't know that. I didn't disregard your advice. It's just the bike stood out because it was so clean and the price was right. Fingers crossed I've made the good decision. Paul, thank you for sharing that. Fantastic. Actually, it's not bad. You only end up paying an extra £3,000. These Tigers are really good value. You know, a nine-year-old Tiger, low mileage, full luggage as well for five and a half grand. You just cannot go wrong. I hope you... If, if you're referring to... I think you'll be referring to this Sunday coming up, Paul. God, I hope the weather warms up for you. That or the Tiger has heated grips. I mean, you're on the right type of bike for, for cold weather riding. My Lord, I hope it has heated grips, Paul. The best of luck. I hope you have an amazing, amazing ride back. And what a difference. Honda CBR 600RR. Going in, getting dropped off at the dealership, saying goodbye to that, and coming out with the big Tiger. Fantastic. Moving on from Nigel. Freddie, greetings from Yorkshire. Now, I'm writing this with a different angle to your recent podcast about bikes for the shorter rider, as I'm, and I'm interested to know if you've had similar thoughts to me on this. I've been looking for a suitable bike for my partner, who's around five foot two and currently riding a 125cc bike. 
um, a license, uh, currently writing 125cc, to take her A license on that has at least the required, I think, 55 horsepower needed so that she can ride any size machine she likes without restriction. As you've discussed in the podcast, there are several suitable candidates upon which closer scrutiny are under 50 horsepower. The outcome of my partner having to pass her test on, say, a 500 Rebel will, I believe, leave her restricted to lower-powered machines and needing to take a further test. Ah, we'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Freddie, and if you've come across a high, any higher-powered machines for shorter riders, shorter riders looking to get an unrestricted license. Ah, Nigel, very interesting. Okay, okay, I didn't know that. So your wife needs a bike coming above 50 cc of 50 horsepower so she can actually pass her test on it and be legally allowed to ride the biggest horsepower bikes. Okay, Nigel, I tell you what, I'm sure my memory is, my memory's not great. Do I remember you saying, Nigel, I think you have a Triumph Street Twin because that would be the bike I would immediately be recommending after riding the Speed Twin 900 in Tenerife. It reminds me of how good that low seat height is. But this goes out to everyone. A, a good kind of learner, beginner-friendly, big bike, 600cc minimum, over 50 horsepower, budget of around about £4,000, if I cor remember correctly, Nigel, and to suit someone who's five foot two. Let me know any recommendations from that. So suit a shorter rider, over 50 horsepower, over 600 cc, around about a budget of 4,000 pounds. Please, people, let me know. And that kind of modern classic style bike, one of that ilk. Let me know, people, and I will share all of the feedback if I get any. Nigel, thank you so much. Moving on. Freddie, I hope all's well. Loved the review on the BSA. The styling's immense. It's just missing the sideways number plate on the front mudguard and it'll be fully retro. If you had to snog, marry, avoid with the Bonneville Gold Star and Interceptor, what would you choose? Oh, I like this. I like this. This, this is in reference to an old TV show where, God, they don't make shows like this. Basically, I think you had some women and some men. And the first half of the show, I think, was a man and he would pick three women to go on a date with or something. He had to pick one to snog, one to marry and one to avoid. Okay, Bonneville Gold Star or Interceptor. Bonneville marry because it's, it's a good lifelong partner that it's got everything you need. I can't imagine ever needing more. It can tour, it's got the power. Oh dear me, dear Cal, you're putting me on the spot. You know what? I haven't even prepared an answer for this. I will be too heartbroken with either. Okay. Okay. Right. Snog. Oh, gold star and avoid interceptor, but that's too painful. I don't know. It's so close. I even feel bad saying it. I'm moving on. I'm brushing over that. I feel so bad saying that. Uh, you mentioned you may be looking to do a trip with the Highland Scramble next year. You should see if you can arrange a Scottish group ride out. Yes, I know. I should. Do you know what? Actually, I get a, there are a lot of Scottish uh, riders who, who get in touch. Lovely bunch. I really should do it. And the Scots are big bikers in Scotland. I should do that. I should do it. Um, 
I move on to the last bit. I'm currently planning some sort of solo tour myself in the summer, potentially with an overnight camp somewhere. I only ride a 125cc, but I'm ready to head back to some of my favorite mountain passes with a new sense of freedom. Would love to hear about uh, you and some of the listeners. Uh, would love to hear about you and some of the listeners for longer trips if you have had any mishaps. Yeah, share it out, people. If you've had mishaps on the longer trips. You know, the worst one I've had, Cal, was pathetically the Bonneville last year and just a spark plug lead coming out. And I rode for a thousand miles with the spark plug lead hanging out. All I needed to do was push it back in with two fingers. And I rode for a thousand miles with the bike, me thinking it was going to blow up and it doing about 50 miles to one tank. It was so uneconomical, bearing in mind that normally it would do 150 miles. It was using up so much fuel with that loose spark plug lead that it was it was just drinking fuel like a five litre Chevy Camaro or something like that. Cal, thank you. I, you know, I still feel bad. I shouldn't have answered that question, Cal. Poor boy interceptor. I love that bike so much. Moving on to Russ, Freddy. Uh, oh, Freddy. I've owned my 2011 Bonneville cast for four years now, and it's been incredible. But, but, all of my fellow biker friends have bigger and newer bikes. I want to do longer tours in 2023, and they all convinced me that I need to sell my trusty Bonneville to get an adventure bike. The tank is too small, they say. You need six gears, they said. It's too small, physically, they said. So I started looking. BMW GSA 800s, Tiger 800s, to name a couple, but nothing was catching my eye. I test rode a few, but still nothing stole my heart. I rode my friend's GSA 1200 for a long ride, and what an incredible machine. Uh, incredible machine. It does everything so well. And that's the problem. It's perfect. No soul, no character. After watching your videos, I fell back in love with my Bonneville, and I'm now convinced it is my bike for life. It optimizes motorbiking for me. Noisy, uncomfortable, bumpy, simple, and above all fun. I now can't wait to get on the Bonneville at every opportunity. Thank you, Ross from Hampshire. Uh, you know, Ross, uh, that, that's exactly the way I feel. I completely, completely agree with you. It's great that you've brought this up because it shows you really, really, you don't, do not need I mean, they're lovely, these big adventure bikes, absolutely lovely. But by no means do you need one of these adventure bikes to go touring, to do huge distances on. You absolutely don't. Your little Bonneville will be just as capable and just as comfortable on the longer journeys. I'm absolutely certain, especially with that King and Queen. See, and you're right. OK, look, just as comfortable. Maybe I'm pushing it. Maybe that's a filthy lie. OK, I've, I've gone too far there. But as you said the character, the soul that you get with it. You know, that deep down feeling of cool. I love it. It may not be as good a tool for the job. You know, these big adventure bikes are supreme machines, really supreme machines. But that Bonneville, you know, or whatever bike you may have in general, you know, but for you, the Bonneville, Russ, just if it makes you feel that certain way, if it gives you that feeling, Nothing more important than that. And to be able to ride that bike and do some big tours on it, oh, it's an indescribably amazing experience. Really amazing. And 
I honestly believe almost any bike can do almost anything. I really do believe that. So thank you so much, Ross, for sharing that. Oh, I really want to get through all of these. Let me see if I can. Okay, I'm going to blast through the next, just because I'm doing about two weeks worth here. Freddie, this is... Freddie, this is Nadir from India. Fantastic to hear from you from India, Nadir. Um, I saw your review on the BSA and enjoyed it. Been, been enjoying my Indian vintage. Ah, yes, Indian vintage, but really just for longer rides. I live in Bombay, so taking that bike out daily is impossible in the melee and the madhouse. Yeah, I've heard it is seriously intense riding out in India, but Nadir, it is... You know, I think it's one of my dream biking destinations. If I'm lucky, I hope to be able to get out. I'm really hoping this happens to India to do some riding, maybe even on Royal Enfields in January, February time, because it's been a dream of mine for so long. I continue with Nadir. Um, so I've been on the hunt for an everyday runaround and was con contemplating Royal Enfield 350 chrome red. But then I was drawn to the BSA, although I like the Royal Enfield Interceptor 650. I also have a 1984 BMW R65, so I don't want to go for another 650 twin. As a result, I was looking to get a, a single for the daily zip and zap here and there. I rode the Royal Enfield several times and liked it quite a bit, but it's been a while since I had a smaller capacity bike and I have some reservations. I wanted to ask a simple question. It's a bit off the regular path, I'm not really sure uh, you would get the comparison. But since you're one of the few people who have ridden both bikes, and if you would try to do a difficult thing and keep the engine capacity and power figures aside, single to single, modern classic to modern classic, <coughs> would you... Ooh, okay, here goes. This is so tough because I love both. How would you rate the BSA versus the, the YL Enfield Classic 350? Yep, it's an oddball here for sure. I know no one compares a 350 to a 650, but they are both single cylinders. And so from that perspective, if it's possible to disengage from the obvious differences in power, I'd like to know, bike for bike, which one has a better fit and finish and is better built. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah, this this is really hard, Nadir. Really, really hard. But I like the question. It's it's a perfectly relevant question. The the BSA is of course, you know, you're probably looking at you know, in England, the gold star, cheapest one, six and a half K. And the classic three fifty, I think it's still about three thousand nine hundred. So colossal difference in price. Huge difference. You're going to get a lot more power from a BSA Gold Star, but, you know, when I rode the Classic 350, I was completely blown away that for the price you could get that much quality. The finish on the BSA, uh, the finish on the Royal Enfield Classic 350, despite it being down on power to the BSA, the finish was, it was second to none. It was completely stunning. It's witchcraft how they've managed to do it. So I may shock you here, Nadir, and say that actually... I think the fit and finish on the Royal Enfield Classic 350 may be slightly better than the BSA Gold Star, despite the huge difference in price. 
yes, the BSA Goldstar is a more comfortable bike for, for longer distances, purely from a power point of view, not from an ergonomic point of view, because that Classic 350 is all day comfort. I mean, the riding position, the seat, the quality, everything, doesn't even vibrate much. It's not about the, the ergonomics, it's purely about the engine being a little bit more powerful, so it's a bit easier for all day on the motorway. And it comes down to this. These are two of my favorite bikes I've ridden. It comes down to price versus power, really, for me. How important is that extra power on the BSA Gold Star in relation to the amount of money you save with the Classic 350? And that is, is a very, very difficult question to answer. I may change my mind daily on this. What I would say for you, Nadir, knowing that you've got the big Indian motorcycle already, my personal preference for you would be go for the classic 350 because it will be a lovely companion to go with your, your big Indian motorcycle. I would, I would say go for the Royal Enfield Classic 350 if I had to call it between the two, from my personal point of view, taking everything into account, the price and everything, if I had to say, if you're asking me to call it and I hate sitting on the fence, I would say, and it's damn tight, Royal Enfield Classic 350. I think it's a pretty much unbeatable package when you take everything into account. Nadir, fantastic to hear from you all the way in India. Brilliant. Moving on. Um, oh, JB. Hi, Freddie. What are your guilty pleasures um, for biking? The ones that you really fancy, but perhaps, but are perhaps uncool, unpopular, or very different to your usual ride. My guilty pleasure, it's one which I've yet to try, and it's a Honda DN01 Cruiser in all black, pure bat bike, long and low. I just think it looks great, yet that quick auto transmission and dad riding stance, but totally unique. Check it out and use prices look good at around about the four to seven K territory. I passed one once uh, and thought it looked awesome. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. One more point from JB here. When you want a first bike for your, for your cherished second bike, what if you already have a cherished classic for the meetups and the 500 miles per annum, but want a bike to do the long, reliable trips? Can get wet, dirty, um, then what modern tour do I go for? I ride on average 9,000 miles a year and this is rising. I ride all year round down to about three degrees and sometimes colder once the salt is down. In the summer, I like long journeys, 250 to 600 miles a day and a day, a full day's riding made up of non-motorway miles, but with the unavoidable uh, section of motorways from time to time. So far, my steeds of choice have been the Victory Octane and a 2020 Triumph Rocket 3R. Both enjoyable, but neither perfect. I don't like classic big tours nor baggers. Ideally below 230 kilos in wet weight, decent suspension and brakes, touring shield, at least 70 horsepower. With the VMAX, I'll want a competent 
Tourer for next year. A brand new bike, I don't need to worry about reliability, can eat the miles sporty enough to enjoy the mountain passes, comfortable enough for motorways. I don't like heavy adventure bikes and prefer a bike on 17 inch wheels, but want space for panniers, maybe to fit Hepcom Becker bags. Thoughts welcome. I've been looking at the Triumph Tiger 660, the Moto Guzzi V100, BMW R1250RS and the Kawasaki Z900RS. JB, I have to chuck one more in for you. And again, I welcome anyone sharing some ideas here with, with JB, but after spending JB an extended period of time with the Triumph Bonneville T120 in Tenerife, I forgot how superb a machine that is. You know, you can get a big, a big screen on these. You know, they come where they come. You can get panniers with them as well. And that really, for me, it feels like it could be a supreme touring machine. Once you put the panniers on and a screen, yes, it's a bit over 230 kilos wet, I think 236, but, but it doesn't feel that big and ungainly. The weight's nicely situated. Uh, consider that, JB. It's a really, really nice bike. I also love your idea of the new Moto Guzzi V100. I really like that. For me, actually, out of the ones you've picked, funnily enough, that would be my pick because that looks like a really special bike. Really, really beautiful. That's a work of art. And I can just imagine JB over the years, you know, that parked up next to, well, next to your, your big Yamaha that you're currently building at the moment, next to your big VMAX. That's a fine pairing, the Italian style with the brutishness of that VMAX. That's a really good pairing. And that Motor Guzzi will age like a fine, fine wine. I think it's really difficult to look too far away from that, actually. But I think I'd chuck in the T120 just as a, a, a side, because I really think that could tour with the best of them, actually. Let me know, JB, what you go for. And if you get the new Motor Guzzi V100, I would love to see it. I've never seen one in the flesh. It, it looks on paper. You know, when I look at it, I Google it. Oh, it looks absolutely stunning. I'm going to wrap it up here just with something that my dad sent me just this morning, actually. I wanted to say this because it's something that I've often spoken about in the past because, excuse me, I probably for the past two years since I've been doing this podcast, I always say with electric, look, I'm sure electric will be the future, but don't buy electric thinking you're going to be saving any money because you're not. You're not going to save a penny in electric because the government will not allow us, i.e. riders or drivers, motorists, they will not allow us to get away with no road tax and no fuel duty with our electric vehicles. The second that the pendulum swings in the favour of a, a good chunk of people now, a significant proportion of people, whether it get to gets to 30% of people uptaking electric motoring, the government won't be able to stomach the loss in taxes and they will immediately start taxing electric vehicle users. They just can't write off that amount of tax loss when people start in mass switching over to electric. And my dad sent me this this morning. It's from the Telegraph. I'm quoting. 
just 19% of car buyers were looking for an electric car in November. That's down from 27% in June. Interest has fallen as energy bills surge, making the cost of running battery-powered cars more expensive and the price of petrol falls for regular and hybrid vehicles. Ministers have also withdrawn subsidies for electric cars. In June, the government ended a £1,500 grant for new electric cars and in November, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, announced that EVs would be subject to road tax from 2025. Well, there we go, it's happened. I mean, I'm pro-electric, you know. I, I want to save the world. I do. I really do. I mean that very strongly. I'm not just chucking it out there for no reason at all. But I, I will eventually move into electric when I when I truly believe it's, you know, it's a viable form of transport and it all works. But I will do so knowing that I'm not going to be saving myself any money at all. It's purely for the environment. It is not for any kind of cost saving because there you go. The government's just confirmed electric vehicles will be taxed, I'm sure, just like petrol vehicles within the next two years. Um, and with everything going on at the moment, People now, I think, know pretty much. Let's, let's just use Britain because I'm British. People in Britain now know that the, the dream of having an electric car and making colossal savings from running that electric car, well, that's, that's no longer a thing. That doesn't exist anymore. They will only be buying electric because they believe they will eventually be forced out of using petrol and diesel, as opposed to buying electric because they thought my Lord, I can fill the tank for £6 and I'll get to not pay road tax and I can drive into London without issue. Well, all those things will go. That's all going to disappear. You're not going to get those benefits. Driving an electric car or motorbike will be exactly the same as driving a petrol car within the imminent future. And it shows just 19%. The amount of people looking at electric cars has dropped from 27% to 19% in the UK. That is a colossal drop when it should be going the other way very steadily. It should constantly be going up with the imminent electrification, I think 2030, 2035. The fact that it's now gone down for the first time, that is a gigantic bit of news and very, very significant as we progress towards electrification. I find that fascinating to see that. Right, wrap it up there. God, I've just been just rambling on for so long. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Great to be back doing the podcast. I will speak to you all next week. Have an amazing, bitterly cold... What are we in now? Mid-December, everyone, just before Christmas. I'm sure I squeeze one in before Christmas. Have a good night. I'll speak to you all in the next one.